This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Ilona Miller, and I will be chairing this morning's session on mitigating climate change displacement, cutting-edge cases and decisions. Before we begin today's session, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are meeting virtually today um, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Today, we have a very um, exciting panel to talk about one of the most pressing and urgent issues in respect of, of climate change, being the matter of climate change displacement. People fleeing disasters and the impacts of climate change are offering, often entering um, an unmapped legal landscape and faced with the challenges of not only legal gaps in the systems to protect and, um, those people, but also overlapping areas of, um, of issues and jurisdictions. So what we see across the world today are courts and other tribunals considering how laws may be shaped and developed to address these unprecedented circumstances driven by both um, you know, natural disasters, but also slow onset events as a result of, of climate change. We're seeing different approaches in different jurisdictions. Um, and as a result of the, these challenges, we're seeing in some cases some quite creative solutions um, being proposed to um, address the, these issues and protect the people um, that are affected. In recent years, we've seen a large number of climate change cases being brought in jurisdictions around the world, and these are relying in many cases on causes of action linked to human rights obligations being owed by states to their citizens, and also um, cases that look at the establishment of duties of care owed by states, um, decision makers, and indeed, recently we've seen cases where duty of, duties of care have been held to apply with respect to, to, to companies as well. So today we will be hearing perspectives on these matters from four highly distinguished experts. Um, today we have with us um, Robin Bronin, who has been working as a human rights attorney and social scientist on climate force displacement for Alaskan Native communities um, for many, many years. Uh, Robin co-founded and directs the Alaska Institute for Justice which is an institute that is focused on the protection of human rights of the Alaskan people, um, advocating for immigrant rights and climate justice. We also have Arma Francis, who is a climate displacement project strategist at the International Refugee Assistance Project, or IRAP, and she has been developing the organisation's strategy in collaboration with the Natural Resource Defence Council and looking at how you expand legal protections for climate displaced persons. Um, Arma is also a non-resident fellow at the Sabine Centre for Climate Law at Columbia University um, and has been very actively engaged in developing legal solutions on climate dis displacement. Um, we also have with us today Solomon Yeo. Um, Solomon is a climate activist um, from the Solomon Islands 
and has um, been leading as campaign director the Pacific Island Students Fighting Climate Change. Um, Solomon's one of the, the 26 more students who founded that organisation and serves as the um, campaign director and the, the, um, the Pacific Island Students for Fighting Climate Change are currently campaigning for a UN General Assembly resolution seeking an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice on climate change and human rights. Um, and our fourth speaker today is Adam Macbeth. Adam is a barrister who practices at the Victorian Bar, um, primarily in public, um, public law, including um, judicial review, constitutional law, immigration and human rights. Um, Adam also um, has uh, a, a strong academic history as the Associate Professor at Monash, Monash University's Law Faculty um, and as a Deputy Director of the Castan Centre on, on Human Rights Law. He's ex written extensively on public international law and human rights and will be speaking today about an action that he is involved in on behalf of Torres Strait Islanders um, facing climate displacement. So we have a, a great lineup of speakers coming from very different global perspectives. Um, and without further ado, um, I'll move into the, the format of today's session. We have about um, 35 to 40 minutes of Q&A with the panel, and then there will be an opportunity for audience questions. And I would invite people to submit their, their questions through the chat function or the Q&A function. Um, and we will come, you know, try and integrate those questions throughout the discussion this morning um, and also have time for questions at the end. So, Robin, if I can ask you to come online and um, we'll, we'll get started. Um, you've been working on issues related to climate-related displacement of Alaska's Native communities um, since 2007. Can you tell us a little bit about the work of the Alaska Institute for Justice and the policy and advocacy that it's been undertaking? Yes, and thanks so much for the introduction. Um, so first, I just want to talk about polar amplification to understand the crisis that we are in globally. Um, so for those of you who don't know, the Arctic has been traditionally warming um, since 2007, twice as fast as the lower latitudes, and right now we're three times as fast as the lower latitudes, which means that we have far surpassed the two degrees Celsius benchmark that the Paris Agreement tried to meet. And um, we've been warming three degrees Celsius in the middle of wintertime when the sun barely rises above the horizon. And that has been catastrophic for Alaska Native communities, especially those that are located along the coastlines of Alaska because Arctic sea ice, which is the ice that covers the Arctic Ocean, it used to be nine months out of the year. Arctic sea ice is rapidly disappearing from the planet. Arctic sea ice is also the air conditioning unit for our planet. And without that, um, communities don't have the natural barrier that protects their communities from the fall storms that we get, and uh, it's causing accelerated rates of erosion and thawing permafrost. And as a result of that, communities are having to make the awful decision about whether or not they can remain where they are. One community, Newtalk, has been trying to relocate for over 20 years. 
federal and state government agencies decided back in 2007 that they had to relocate by 2012. It is now a decade later, one third of the community is safe and two thirds of the community are living in a humanitarian crisis. And there's no timeline for when they will be able to move to their relocation site. Gosh, that's um, harrowing to, to, to hear about those impacts on the, on the ground in, you know, in, in, in such circumstances. I mean, as you've been working on, on these, these issues, how have you seen the, the recognition of climate-related displacement change over the years? Are you starting to see more traction coming from governments, regulators and other institutions? Um, and also are you seeing sort of a, a greater acceptance and recognition of the science and impacts? What I'm seeing are more academics and researchers involved in the issue. Um, and I continue to see an incredible reluctance. And I, I most know, of course, the United States government and the extraordinary reluctance for the United States government to step into this space of creating a governance framework that can help facilitate the uh, availability of resources and technical assistance so that Alaska Native communities get what they need if they make the decision to relocate. So in these circumstances, litigation is one of the tools that we have to try and sort of advocate for, for, for change and to highlight the, 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 the issues. Um, North American Indigenous communities have brought some of the leading cases, um, raising the impacts of climate change um, and those how those impacts will affect their fundamental human rights. Um, do you see these sort of these cases as playing an important role? And can you talk a little bit about any of the, the litigation that your, um, your office has been involved in? So I think the litigation is critically important, especially now more than ever, because the tools that I have used, for instance, the advocacy tools have not been sufficient in order to get the US government to act. And um, the Alaska Institute for Justice filed on behalf of five indigenous communities, one in Alaska, four in Louisiana, a complaint with the UN special rapporteurs, 10 of them, um, seeking to hold the United States government accountable for the human rights violations that are being caused by the climate crisis and the US government's failure to act. And we are now um, asking the Biden administration to officially invite the UN Special Rapporteur on the human rights of the internally displaced to the United States so that she can document and investigate the human rights violations that are occurring in Louisiana and Alaska. Gosh, so, you know, litigation is one tool, but a lot of the work that, um, that the Institute is doing is focusing on looking at how to sort of um, make more effective the community-based relocation programs. Can you tell us a little bit about the research projects that you've been, been undertaking in that space? Yeah, so that's the critical part of the work that we're doing. The litigation is a tool that um, needs to be used, but what we need is a model and what I call a governance model mm -hmm. of what a human rights-based relocation governance framework looks like, because throughout the world, we have horrific legacies of government-mandated relocations where 
The government makes the decision that a community needs to relocate, chooses the relocation site, and people suffer horrifically as a consequence of that. So we're working with 15 Alaska Native communities. They are leading our work and designing a governance framework that protects their right to self-determination, their tribal sovereignty, that will ensure that they will be able to survive and thrive as the climate crisis continues to permanently submerge the land where their communities are located. So very much community driven and sort of determined by communities rather than by institutions and, and external forces. Yes, they um, they make they they decide the questions mm. we ask. You know, when we are seeking research dollars, they guide us when we are um, using advocacy strategies to engage with government agencies such as the Federal Emergency Management Agency, which is the government agency in the United States that has the responsibility to respond to disasters um, and housing and urban development. So they guide our comments to ensure that equity and justice and human rights are foundational because in the United States, US government agencies have still are, are harboring the colonialism and racism upon which these institutions and governance mechanisms were founded and they need to be removed in order for communities to get access to the resources they need. Yeah, indeed. No, thank you. Thank you for that, Robin. Um, I'll bring in Arma Francis now. Um, Arma, you've been working on the International Refugee Assistance Project. Are you able to tell us a little bit more about that and how that sort of provides a, another sort of framing for, for displacement in um, North America? Sure. Um, so the International Refugee Assistance Project, IRAP, um, is an organization that organizes law students and lawyers to enforce the rights of refugees and also displaced people. Um, and we approach this work through three main lenses. Um, we provide direct legal services to clients, um, but also strategically litigate and um, engage in advocacy on behalf of clients. And something that's unique about IRAP um, is that the advocacy work and um, the litigation work that we do is really informed by the needs that, that are coming up with the client work that we, we do. Um, we recently launched our climate program earlier this year, um, and it's really um, exciting for us to be doing this work. Yeah, so in terms of the, the climate project and the, the sort of um, program, um, could you tell us a little bit about what's involved in, in that, um, that program? And, you know, perhaps even um, before that, um, you know, what, what is the, the current status of protection of um, refugees that are being displaced by, by climate change and coming into, um, in your case, the United States? Sure. Um... Uh, I think it's it was pretty clear from Robin's remarks the urgency of this issue. Um, I've heard it be described as this decade as the one that's most critical in terms of climate action. Um, and I think that's true. Something that we're seeing is that climate is already emerging as a lead driver of displacement. So climate related and other environmental disasters are displacing three times the number of people within their own countries than conflict. 
Um, and while that's their case, the law just isn't where it needs to be. Um, there are no multilateral treaties that comprehensively address climate displacement, nor are there domestic frameworks in place that really comprehensively make sure that people's rights are protected um, and that they can move in, in safety and dignity. Um, I think like at, the, at just top line, it's really important to highlight that the majority of people who are on the move in the context of climate change are Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And that's true whether people are moving within their own um, borders or are making the difficult decision to move as communities within their own countries, um, or whether they're seeking safety across borders. And for us at IRAP, that means that it's really important to center justice as part of this work. Um, the yeah, if you want to jump in, you seemed like you wanted to jump in with a question. No, so I, I was going, I was going to 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 ask. So you know, with with that justice focused, I mean, what are the the types of changes that you're seeking to to in, implement, or you know, are there particular forms of legal um, instruments that you see as um, being, you know, the the model to um, assist people in achieving climate justice in the context of displacement? Sure. Um, here in the U.S., the Biden administration um, just ordered the a report um, on climate's impact on migration. Um, and in response to that interagency governmental response um, report, IRAP released our own report with a set of recommendations for the Biden administration. Um, and the key takeaway from that report is that there are existing legal tools that, that the US government at very least can be using. Um, and I'd be happy to talk more about those. But I think the really important point is that if migration is going to be a viable adaptation strategy, it's really important that we have the legal frameworks in place to support that movement. Yeah, so so perhaps then can, can you um, outline a little bit more about those legal strategies and what, what you see would be sort of best practice or, you know, leading um, the, the way to um, facilitate that, that orderly um, approach? Yeah, um, I think before I answer that, it's also important to note that um, the majority of climate displacement happens within borders, but some people are forced to seek shelter in other countries. Um, and I think what's less talked about is the fact that, that, as I said, the majority of people experiencing climate displacement are Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And when we're talking about um, being able to migrate from the global south to the global north, it takes an incredible amount of resources. And so the work that IRAP is doing um, is focused on cross-border displacement, um, and again, centering this idea of global justice, where migration is part um, of a just response to the climate solution. Um, and so one of the key within that frame, one of the key issues that's been longstanding in this area and in part due to the work of the Calder Center is whether or not um, people moving in the context of climate change qualify as refugees. And um, in recent times, um, UN, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR, issued guidance that says that climate displaced people can qualify as refugees. And part of the work that IRAP is doing in partnership with organiz other organizations is to highlight um, successful cases here in the US where people had a climate-related element to their asylum came and to also represent climate-displaced people um, in hopefully successful asylum claims. All right, could you perhaps tell us a little bit more around um, those, those uh, you know, examples of the asylum um, cases? How, how have they been sort of um, 
how they played out and um, you know, how receptive have courts and tribunals been to, to those arguments? Sure. So um, the way that climate shows up in a lot of the cases that we've highlighted so far um, is that it's uh, it heightens persecution, but it's not necessarily the central element or grounds um, for people getting relief. So one story um, that's in our recent report, for example, is of Isabel, um, who's an Indigenous Honduran woman who um, was fighting government appropriation of her tribal lands. Um, the lands were climate vulnerable. Um, Isabel stood up and was able to gain asylum last year in the US based on her status as an environmental defender. Um, and in that case, climate was contributing to the dwindling resources that um, Isabel's tribe had access to and also created pressure um, or created more of a context for the government to have incentive to try to seize those lands. Um, and so part of the work that we're doing, though, is to also push the law a little bit within existing frameworks to say governments are, for example, investing in extractive industries and communities against their wills. And those communities are then facing crop failure, starvation. It's really important that the law be able to recognize that as harm um, that that's worthy of relief. That, that's really, you know, quite, quite, um, quite, quite fascinating. I hadn't sort of thought about that, that angle before in terms of the, the persecution for environmental activism, because we have seen that sort of throughout the world, um, you know, very strong examples of, um, um, in, you know, that persecution of people standing up for environmental justice. Um, it's, you know, fantastic to, to actually see that, you know, obviously not in a positive way um, that, you know, that is, is still happening, but that there, there is a recognition that that is, is connected to those concepts of, of persecution and that asylum can be sought on those grounds. Um, I might now bring in um, Solomon um, from a, a, a Pacific perspective. So thank you very, very much, Arma. And I think we'll come back to hopefully some of the, these issues in the, the, the Q&A. Um, Solomon, can you tell us a little bit about the work that the Pacific Island students fighting climate change have um, been, been doing? Um, you know, what was the, the motivation behind setting up the organisation and, um, and bringing your, your campaign to the, the General Assembly? Thank you, Silvana, and colleagues for that great presentation. It was really interesting to hear this different perspective together again. Um, Yes, and for your question, I think the motivations behind organization's formation really is, of course, many of the students who, who are taking part of this are all Pacific Islanders. We are, we are as one person um, claimed it, living experts to the climate crisis. We have grown and molded by environment, but now we are seeing that the environment is somehow turning against us as well and causing many of um, uh, complications and discomfort to our fully ex uh, exercising and enjoyment of our base, even our basic human rights. So the adverse effects of impacts of climate change is really real. And that is, I guess, the foundation for the motivation. But building onto that, we also seen that the progress in terms of the climate, uh, the climate change regime internationally, regionally, has been moving at a glacial progress in terms of addressing the issues that are, we're facing on the ground. Um, we also identified that there's many gaps in international law um, that it needs to be addressed in terms of um, assisting or complementing the international progress on addressing climate change as well. And for the issue, for the top, for the sake of this uh, topic, um, we also noticed uh, noticed that um, 
in spite, uh, despite internal displacement preparation in the region, the Pacific region is beginning to take place. Frameworks for external migration uh, through although a very last resort for Pacific countries it still remains underdeveloped with several gaps in international law and politics that makes um, climate migration possibilities a bit difficult internationally. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Solomon, I was, going, I was going to say, I mean, one of my, my experience working in the, the Pacific has been, um, you know, there, there's a, a sense that, you know, displacement is, is a, a, a potential consequence of the climate change impacts, but it, there, for, for many, many years, there was a reluctance to talk about, um, you know, relocation and, and management um, of that on the basis that what was, you know, front and centre was the need for very urgent and ambitious action on, on climate change. Um, do you find that, um, I mean, there's still very much a need for that urgent action on climate change. We have to try and, um, you know, limit warming to, to 1.5 degrees in order to, to protect our communities. But um, do you see now that the, the discourse around displacement in the Pacific and the, the need to have an, ordin or an orderly approach to, to relocation is now seen as a viable sort of approach with respect to adaptation, um, like Arma was mentioning? Um, yes, yes and no, because at the moment, the, the conversation on um, climate displacement has been mostly been situated um, um, although I can, I can not, I'm not too confident in speaking for other Pacific countries, but I speak for my country, Solomon Islands, and I'm based there. Um, our country, the discussion on climate displacement has all been centralized in the urban areas, where the governments are, where the uh, developing partners are, where the civil, the key civil society are. But that is just a minority of the organized, uh, minority of the population. The majority of the population lives in the rural areas. So these people, although seemingly understand what climate change is, but that the complex issue of climate displacement or climate mobility, that might be a quite of a new topic to them as well. And it requires a lot of awareness raising and a lot of discussions that needs to be made. So I would say in terms of um, prioritizing this issue at the moment, in terms of community level and to the national level, it's still trying to, we're still trying to calibrate towards that. Okay, thank you for that. Um, now let's talk about the work that you're doing seeking an advisory opinion from the UN General Assembly um, and to seek an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice on climate and human rights issues. Can you explain the key sort of questions that you would be looking to frame that opinion um, to, to address? Yeah, thank you for that question. Yes, so when the organisation formed the 20th seven law students got together, we, we decided to uh, delve into so many research points on how can we use the law to drive uh, climate action. So we've done some couple of research and then we come across the International Court of Justice Advisory Opinion, which is not new concept to the Pacific, which was taken before by the Palau government in 2011, 11 or 12, in their campaign for the advisory opinion. Now, the question that they were pushing for back then was really towards state responsibility. And having thought about that, the students have thought that maybe a better uh, could improve on that question. So the framing that we're looking to see is that um, um, although the, ultimately the negotiation is, needs to be done by the state, the diplomatic negotiation is an actual legal question that we put forward to the UNJ and then to the court, 
the youth campaign has developed a question on um, framing under what are the obligation of states under international law to protect the rights of the current and future generation from the adverse effects of climate change. The two central teams, the legal question here is focusing on obligation towards state obligation towards human rights and intergenerational equity. Great. I think you know we certainly are seeing globally a number of the, the climate change cases um, that are being brought are being brought by children and children's representatives on the basis of the impacts of climate change on future generations. Um, I mean, can you tell us a bit about um, the, you know, the, the level of support that you're getting in terms of um, and the process that you need to go through to enable this, um, this matter to progress to the ICJ? Absolutely. But it's, it also would like to highlight that campaigning in the Pacific, especially climate, uh, in this very complex issue of uh, using the law, um, it can be really difficult. We have as young youth campaigning, it's really difficult in terms of uh, trying to influence the process, get partners, building the momentum. It has truly been a challenge, but we, we have pushed on forward to uh, fortunately to reach this far in the campaign. The progress, um, although it's been a slow start in the beginning, it has just, the momentum just escalated uh, most recently. And um, we have um, continued to raise awareness with government officials, uh, attorney generals, uh, offices around the region on the matter. The response was very positive as well. You're getting a lot of support from um, um, a lot of civil society, um, other governments, and also key stakeholders to the campaign. Um, Vanuatu government has, uh, uh, has just re recently announced that they are concretely taking this campaign towards the UNGA and will be conducting diplomatic negotiations with the state. Um, the process on getting this advisory opinion uh, central to this at the moment that we're heading towards is to build a simple majority vote at the UNGA once it's being tabled. So the, the focus right now is building that uh, bandwagon of coalition of states who will be able to vote yes at the UNGA. So all we need is a simple majority vote at the UNGA. And um, going forward, we see uh, the next, forward, next uh, step for the campaign is towards COP26 at Glasgow. And we're, in, we're planning to implement a month long campaign plans to build on the momentum on this so that we can get uh, uh, more states to support or are aware of this campaign and hopefully vote yes at the UNGA. Yeah, no, look, I, I can imagine it's a, a very, um, sort of involved program of, of diplomacy to try and sort of really win over uh, well, and you know, explain to, to, to governments around the world the importance of this issue and the, the, the need to, to get these questions answered by, um, by the international court and to, to set those, those, um, those advisory opinions. I mean, one of the things that you know, I think we've seen, the, there have been other sort of um, campaigns and, and approaches in the past seeking um, advisory opinions from um, the ICJ and trying to sort of garner that political and, and governmental support. But do you, you've mentioned that, you know, one of the distinguishing features about your, um, you know, your case now is that it's being brought on behalf of young people and in, in respect of um, the impacts of the, the rights of, of children, but also future generations and the intergenerational equity principle. Um, but do you also see um, the potential for um, movement here 
being supported and enhanced by the, the changing attitudes to the, the scientific evidence around climate change, and in particular, the, the attribution um, component, because I think certainly what, what I've seen in a number of the, the other sort of um, climate cases brought globally is we're no longer we're no longer arguing about the science. We're no longer sort of seeing um, you know states or even companies challenging that climate change exists, is real, and is having the impact it's having. Do you think reports like the the IPCC's sixth report um, and the, the the body of scientific evidence around climate impacts is something that will support um, your ability to 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 bring this this action? Yes, that, I think you raise a very important question, and of course, that that question is also very, I guess, the stumbling blocks of many uh, the attribution scientists, stumbling blocks of many uh, climate litigation cases that we brought before the court, because it's really difficult to establish that. And I'm still hearing a lot of experts having speaking with them that saying that it's really hard. It's still yet hard, regardless of the science, mm -hmm. to establish the uh, attribution attribution, climate attribution to a particular state or corporation or entity that is perpetuating this, um, this um, degradation of our climate, climatic systems. Um, to, I can only speak for the fact that um, this campaign is not, you can classify it as climate litigation, but it's more just seeking a process or a performance by the court in just giving in its advisory opinion. But it is through this advisory opinion that we see that it can entertain uh, a wide, wide variety of uh, climate science and also the facts and the uh, essential international and giving a whole robust understanding of where things are and how can particular areas or gaps can be further clarified. Regarding the IPCC report, um, it brings new perspective indeed to the, the recent one. It brings new perspective to addressing climate change. It really highlights now that it is human beings are the primary drivers of um, the dangerous level of uh, climatic interference. Um, for regards to the campaign, it, um, it, continue, it continues to reinforce the existential threat climate change is really posing to, um, to our survival in the Pacific. It, it, but however, it also strengthens the our case in terms of our credibility and continues to remind, especially young people engaging the campaign, uh, why are we in this campaign in the first place and the dire complications of why we, why we are not choosing if we choose not to act yeah no in indeed and i've, I've just had um, a couple of questions coming through the the q a um one of the the questions is around um you know we're talking about international courts and tribunals and um a, as a forum to address some of these these climate change um sort of matters and and but are you, are you also exploring um, opportunities within the domestic um, courts um, and, and anything else within, in, within the Pacific and the Solomon Islands in, in your case particular? With relating to, if to I whether So whether there are any um, domestic actions being brought um, with respect to climate change impacts, uh, is anyone sort of, for example, looking to hold um, local, local governments um, to to account. Mm, I mean, it, I, I can imagine it's difficult in the Pacific because the Pacific governments have indeed been the ones that have been at the forefront advocating for the climate um, climate action. But um, you know, certainly in Australia, and we'll bring Adam in in just a minute to talk about how we're looking to to hold developed country governments to a, to account. But um, since the question came through, I just thought I'd ask if there's anything sort of domestically happening in the the, the Pacific. 
Yes, uh, that's that's a very interesting question indeed. Um, the short answer is no, but um, with regards to that, um, in terms of how it might there might be a, a avenue that this might be more common in the future for the even for the Pacific because mm -hmm. there there's a there's a political will going on around Pacific states on trying to develop um, frameworks and legislation. You can see the recent climate change bill that has been endorsed by the um, uh, Fijian parliament mm -hmm. that has that opportunity or allows for the um, um, individuals or uh, uh, stakeholders in the country to sue their governments for their failure to uh, uphold their targets or uh, failure to perform the act accordingly. So there's, there's an opportunity to do that in the future, uh, I guess so. But then for the other Pacific Island countries still, we do not, um, many of them still do not have a climate change uh, act. We also, um, but yet we still are developing other frameworks that also the failure of performance of those frameworks, especially climate, uh, climate uh, for the Solomon Islands, you have the climate uh, relocation guidelines that we're developing that um, failure to performance that you can potentially uh, have potential cases in domestic courts. Okay, great. Well, I think with, with that, I will bring Adam in. Um, now, Adam, you have some slides, which um, I will hopefully have um, shared. Um, I'm hoping that people can see the slides from Adam, is that correct? Yeah. Yep. Okay. I, I can see it. Yes. You can see it. Okay. If you can see it, then I think we're we're great. So, Adam, uh, you know, in Australia, we have um, indigenous communities who are also facing, you know, extreme climate change risks, um, including the the risk of displacement. Can you talk a little bit about how these um, risks are playing out and what, um, you know, how the community is addressing these risks and um, perhaps, you know, tell us how. Um, you know, what, what role does climate litigation sort of play in the, the approach to addressing these, these risks? Yeah, thanks, Ilana. I, I, can, I can talk to it uh, in relation to uh, these eight individuals you've just, you can see on the screen there. Uh, I'm not sure about it, that I can speak for Indigenous communities more broadly, but mm -hmm. um, so the, the case that I'm involved in, um, sometimes colloquially called the Torres Strait Eight, um, the, the formal name is Billy, and Australia, uh, a case to the um, United Nations uh, Human Rights Committee uh, for breaches of the ICCPR by Australia. Uh, if you flick through the slides, um, Eleanor, you can see um, the inundation of the island. So it's brought by eight individuals who uh, live on uh, four different islands in the Torres Strait. And the, the complaint is basically about the, the inundation of their islands. Uh, by seawater caused by climate change. Uh, and the, the evidence and the, the statements uh, from the, these individuals and from their communities is quite striking when they talk about how things were in their, you know, in their memories, uh, you know, within their, their lifetimes uh, until how they are now in terms of you know, the encroachment of the sea. Uh, and so some of the impact um, you can see, so you can see in that slide in particular, the, the complete erosion um, of the land itself uh, and the, the creeping up of the shoreline, but you also get inundation uh, of the seawater over their, um, their uh, subsistence gardens. You can see that, that slide on the right, the, the text sort of covers it a bit, but that's, you can see the wheelie bin there underwater, um, among other things. So the, the, there's a, a direct threat to their housing. There's a direct, um, the, the, gar the subsistence gardens where they grow their vegetables and their fruits, um, 
uh, are no longer able to to grow anything because of the the inundation of the seawater. Uh, the graves, the graveyards where their ancestors are, are buried, uh, are being in some cases uh, washed away. So there's a real um, there's a real existential threat to these uh, to these uh, people. So the the uh, idea behind the case is um, to allege violations by Australia of um, various rights under the ICCPR, um, specifically the right to life under Article 6, which is both um, the, the loss of life itself uh, and also um, the, I guess, the qualitative issue of a, a life of dignity. Um, there's also the uh, breach of the right to home and family or interference with home and family. And there's the um, interference with the rights of minorities to exercise uh, their culture. Uh, so I, I think as far as relocation is concerned, what's really striking when you talk to um, these uh, eight uh, clients, these eight complainants, is they don't want to relocate. Uh, and so, and that's striking about this particular case is that the remedies that they're seeking uh, from uh, Australia, so uh, through the recommendations of the Human Rights Committee, are um, remedies that would allow them to continue to living uh, to, to live their lives on their home island. So they're they're asking for um, adaptation remedies, including things like um, funding for emergency seawalls and uh, pumping and drainage and, and things of that sort, um, as well as uh, mitigation. Uh, remedies, which was about ceasing uh, actions that contribute to climate change, so coal generation, setting some emissions targets, um, things of that sort. Uh, so, um, so that's that's sort of the the case uh, in a nutshell. Um, what's different about this case compared to uh, other cases, which I think we'll we'll probably get onto in the in the discussion, is that it's not linked to any specific project which make and so for example it's not about approval approval of a particular new mm -hmm. coal mine or something of that sort uh, it's about the harm that has been that has been caused and is continuing to be caused by climate change more broadly um, but what that means from a domestic legal point of view is it's there's nothing specific to challenge mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so what we're what we're seeking here is um, I, I guess a uh, some recognition of the responsibility and the culpability uh, for the human rights impacts uh, of climate change. And part of taking that responsibility is to take the measures that are necessary for, for these uh, islanders to be able to continue to live a dignified life on their islands and not be forced mm -hmm. to relocate uh, and to take the, the measures that are necessary so that the situation doesn't deteriorate into the future. Yeah. So, in in addition to, to to declarations around the um, you know the the existence of the rights and the impacts of um, the the actions of the government on on those those rights, um, what other remedies can um, you know the the commission sort of um, you know provide? What what you know what what will you be sort of hoping as to to be the outcome? In, a, in its final form, if you're successful. Well, the committee has no um, compulsive uh, mm -hmm. or coercive power uh, in terms of remedies. It can make recommendations. And so mm -hmm. among the remedies that, that um, the, uh, the authors are 
seeking to have recommended um, mm -hmm. are, uh, as I say, emergency funding for uh, for mm -hmm. seawalls and and um, those sorts of uh, adaptive measures, measures to you know mm -hmm. to uh, allow them to deal with the damage that is is happening as we speak. But also they're looking um, uh, for recommendations uh, for changes in in policy. Uh, and this, I mean, that that leads into the perennial problem with mm -hmm. with climate change litigation, which is causation. Uh, the, and and that's uh, a theme that comes through really strongly in the government's response to the communication. Uh, in this case, which is to say, no one country is responsible for rising sea levels, mm -hmm. uh, and if no one country is responsible, how do you sue them? Um, and then, as I say, that's the that's the perennial problem in litigation in this area. Uh, but of course, it's not unknown to public international law that there are certain types of wrongful acts uh, for which states can be jointly responsible. Uh, and in this case, the Australian government has the responsibility for the Torres Strait Islands and to take all the measures within its power to uh, protect uh, the lives uh, and the, the cultural rights of, of the people in the Torres Strait Islands. So uh, it's their uh, responsibility, we say, uh, to take measures, as I say, take measures to allow them to adapt mm -hmm. to the harm that's, that's being done, but also to prevent future harm uh, in by doing what they can within their, their climate change uh, policies. Yeah. No, look, I think, um, you know, it's, it's interesting that, you know, here in, in Australia, um, you know, recently the, um, the federal court um, in the first instance handed down its um, decision in the, the Sharma case, um, mm -hmm. a case again um, brought by, by young people. But in, in that case, Justice Bromberg recognised a, a novel duty of care being owed by the Minister for the Environment to, to that class of um, people being, being young people in Australia. Um, I mean, one of the, the things that was quite striking in that case was that the minister didn't challenge the scientific evidence that was presented. But yeah. then, you know, obviously the other sort of important component is the, the finding of the duty and, you know, appreciate that that is, is on appeal. But can you perhaps tell us, um, you know, do you see um, anything coming out of the um, establishment of uh, a duty in the, um, in the form sort of looked at in the, the Sharma case that, May have any any bearing or relevance in terms of what what um, the the authors are seeking. Uh, it's a, it's an interesting question. Um, there there are a few points of difference which mean that the 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 helpfulness of the the duty in Sharma um, is limited uh, for a situation like our clients. One is the one that I alluded to earlier, which was that Sharma was about mm -hmm. um, challenging um, or not, not challenging exactly, but um, seeking an injunction. Uh, to prevent the minister from approving a new coal mine, uh, because that's a, an approval that's required under the uh, the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, uh, and the so the duty of care was was found in connection with that particular statute, uh, because the statute contemplates um, uh, intergenerational equity and, and harm to. To future generations as, as one of the, the things that needs to be taken into account. Um, and Justice Bromberg uh, found that that was a, a relevant consideration in the admin law sense. So it has to be something that must be considered mm -hmm. for a lawful decision. Uh, and then there, as, as you say, uh, Alona, there were uh, some very, very detailed factual findings which were not challenged by the Commonwealth. And I, I suspect they might regret that, <laughs> that choice now. Um, that is, and they're set out in Justice Bromberg's judgment. Those might be helpful. 
uh, in the future. But then ultimately, um, His Honour found that there was not a, a a basis for an injunction because it wasn't established that it, that approving the mine would necessarily um, breach the duty of care to uh, future to future generations. And that so that was that was um, partly because it was said that there could be um, uh, measures that could have been uh, put in place to ameliorate the harm. Uh, and um, so no injunction was granted to prevent the approval of that mine at that stage. Uh, so in our case, there are a couple of differences. One, one big difference is that there's no um, specific decision or specific project that's being, that's being challenged. Um, so there's nothing to, there's no mm -hmm. approval, there's no administrative decision to connect uh, to the harm. Um, that's one problem. Um, and it's also the case that the, that since the finding uh, in Sharma was made, um, the, a number of new coal mines have been approved, I think at least four mm -hmm. that I know of. Uh, and in each case, uh, the minister has referred to the duty of care and said, I have considered this duty of care and I, care and I, con I conclude that um, there is no um, uh, future harm that would come from uh, this coal mine. And in any case, if we didn't build it, someone else would. So, uh, you know, uh, the, the, there's no harm. And so the, the, the duty of care hasn't, hasn't prevented the, the approvals from taking place. But nevertheless, it's, a, um, it's, a, it's an important step. Um, it's a very important advance if it, if it survives the appeal mm. to say that that is something that needs to be taken into account uh, in environmental decision-making. Um, prospectively, and so it, it might also, in terms of informing the the litigation choices uh, of climate change activists going forward, it might be that um, they need to think more about connecting a particular decision to uh, the challenge that's being made, as opposed to challenging for for harm from climate change uh, in general. Mm -hmm. Great. Now, look, I think I think that highlights some of the you know the the real differences between. The approaches that can be taken under domestic legal frameworks where you have specific um, you know, decisions or duties or, um, you know, under, under statute and the nature of the cases that are brought under, under international law. Um, Robin, perhaps if I can bring you back in on, on that question, because we've had a question from the audience um, with respect to you know, comparatively how important are you know, the international versus the domestic advocacy approaches and litigation campaigns? Um, you know, do you see sort of a, one forum or other having a, you know, a, a more direct impact or, you know, just serving different purposes? Yeah, so thanks so much for that question, because I think domestic courts are critically important. And um, one avenue that hasn't yet been fully explored in the United States, but needs to be, is about the discriminatory impact of the way that government agencies are making decisions about who gets the funding to respond to climate change impacts. And um, an analogy is in the United States back in the 90s, a, a group, the American Baptist Church sued the US government for the discriminatory application of asylum law because 98% of Salvadorans and 97% of Guatemalans were denied asylum and they won that case. And so I think we need to use those frameworks about how domestic laws are being uh, 
are um, how, how US government agencies and national government agencies outside of the United States, how are their mandates impacting, as Alma said, you know, Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities? Because in the United States, it's very clear that those communities are not getting equal access to the resource that federal government agencies have. Yeah. So then um, another sort of question that's come through the Q&A, which I think, um, you know, if perhaps I can bring Arma in on, on this one as well, links to, um, you know, in terms of domestic litigation, um, particularly in, in the US, um, beyond refugee claims, what other sort of litigation strategies have been successful um, in terms of causes of action that have been brought? Yeah, I think this is a great question, um, and I wish I had more to share on it because I think it's a really um, good insight that local and domestic courts might be useful in this area. One thing we haven't talked about yet is climate gentrification. Um, so the changeover in, in populations who can afford to live in a place after uh, an environmental disaster. Um, and so, for example, in New York law, they're very, um, strong environmental conservation laws that require developers to consider the socioeconomic impacts um, of development. And so there are tools like, um, like that law that can be used in the aftermath of disaster to make sure that developers are considering equity issues when, when they're rebuilding um, to make sure that communities who've been affected by disasters aren't then pushed out of those communities. So I think that's one example um, in the US. And then some of the work that we're doing in, in the EU is to explore um, domestic implementation of rights to life, um, rights to family life, protection against um, refoulement at the domestic level as well. So those are a couple of things outside of the asylum framework. Okay, great. And uh, Robin, do you have any any views or anything you'd like to, to add on that, that point? No, I am. Um, yeah, I think that it is uh, so far under-researched in regard to what lawyers can do within countries to litigate issues not about you know the climate change causes that are having impacts because as Adam um, articulated it's been pretty tough to get positive decisions from domestic courts but I think this whole issue of the discriminatory application of laws within the United States and in other countries in this context of the climate crisis needs to be further researched to, to figure out what the litiga litigation strategies are. Yeah, okay. Um, Alma, you mentioned sort of the work in the, the EU and you know one of the, um, I think, patterns we see in terms of displacement is coming from, from Africa into, into, the, into the EU. Um, one of the, the questions that has come through is um, that some refugee status decision makers in Africa have reported that um, they're not yet seeing claims for protection based on climate change, even though they do know that it's driving displacement. Um, you know, are you, through your connections with work and colleagues in the EU, um, seeing particular barriers around the ability to bring those types of claims um, in the, the context of climate change um, and its impacts in, in Africa? Um, I can answer that 
EU, Africa specifically, but I will say what I know from the US context, which is that um, often uh, the their screening interviews for asylum and, and immigration officers are acting very quickly. So if someone um, comes up and says, hey, I, I, I'm here in the US seeking asylum because um, of Hurricane Etta, for example, or a hurricane that hit my community, that immigration officer might say, okay, there's no climate or environmental grounds in asylum law. Um, no credible fare, this case is thrown out. So part of the issue um, or part of the challenge or part of the opportunity is to train immigration officials to be able to recognize um, how climate is showing up and to be able to draw um, stories out of people that that means that they would be um, eligible for legal relief. So for example, in that, in that example that I just gave, that person might have been living in a climate vulnerable community because of a local ordinance that required members of an ethnic minority to live in a particular area, for example. Um, and, and ethnic discrimination is a grounds for asylum. Um, so this is just all a long way to say that there are ways to train our immigration officials. And I imagine this would be applicable in the EU as well to make sure that we're not throwing out valid um, asylum claims just because they're leading with a climate story. Okay, great. Thanks for that. Um, we've got a couple more minutes and a couple more questions. Um, one, um, and I might sort of put this to, to Solomon and, and perhaps Adam, is, um, you know, how are recent advancements in attribution science being used to support litigation cases um, and in particular supporting the, those tests of causation and foreseeability? Solomon, would you like to, to jump in first? Yes, um, for, the, for the purpose of this question, I would have a little to contribute as um, I have not personally done a lot of um, research or up-to-date um, findings on the attribution side. So kindly pass the opportunity to Adam. Thank you. Okay, that. great. Adam? Um, the, as far as foreseeability is concerned, it's being used um, quite a bit. There's a, there's a fair uh, amount of um, scientific evidence that was put before Justice Bromberg in Sharma, and it was, as I say, it was basically uncontradicted. So um, for foreseeability purposes, it's there. Um, causation, I think, is still um, a hurdle. Um, and and the, the same is true in, in our case of Billy. There's, there's a fair amount of um, the um, climate science that's, that goes to the questions of foreseeability. Um, but, but attribution and causation, I think, are, are still... Um, uh, courts, courts, and and um, decision makers are having difficulty accepting um, that causal link. So that that's probably an advance um, that needs to be taken better advantage of. I think. Oh, look, thank thank you very much for that. Now I'm con conscious of time. Um, I appreciate that there were a couple of other questions that that came through that we haven't had a chance to get to, but. Um, I'm sure that, um, you know, there will be opportunities for um, the audience to, to reach out directly to the, to the organisers with particular questions if they would like to, to follow up. Um, I'd like to just thank our panellists um, once again, Robin, Arma, Solomon and Adam, for a really, really sort of um, insightful and, and important discussion this morning. Um, really appreciate your insights, really appreciate your time. Um, and I'd like to say, you know, thank you very much. And um, I hope everyone enjoys um, the, the
the rest of the, the Caldor Centre's um, annual conference. And I encourage you to sort of log in and attend um, all the other sessions that, that are upcoming over the, the next day or so. Great, thank you very much, everyone. <laughs>